With Halloween just around the corner, my family has plenty of tricks and treats planned. But thanks to Pampers, one thing I have never been afraid of is a leaky diaper. Fear no leaks with new and improved Pampers Swaddlers, now featuring a blowout barrier at the back waist that helps prevent up to 100% of leaks, even blowouts. We've always looked forward to getting the girls dressed up for Halloween when they were babies. And with Pampers, we knew that in addition to being absolutely adorable in their costumes, they would be dry, clean, and comfortable. With Swaddlers, you can rest assured that you have superior leak protection while keeping baby skin healthy. Pampers Breathe Free Liner wicks away wetness, allowing baby skin to breathe, while the lockaway channels help keep baby skin dry and healthy. Pampers Swaddlers are dermatologists approved by the Skin Health Alliance, hypoallergenic, and free of parabens and latex. Pamper Swaddlers are available in sizes newborn to size 8 and now feature designs with the newest animal characters, Shiloh the Elephant and Freddy the Duck. For trusted protection, trust Pampers, the number one pediatrician-recommended brand. Download the Pampers Club app today and earn Pampers cash. Redeem your Pampers cash for exclusive Pampers coupon savings and rewards. A little update on our March 27th live recording of Latina to Latina. You did it. You sold out our early bird tickets. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. There is still time to grab your regular tickets while they last. Again, the details. We are partnering with our friends at Poderistas to bring you a conversation with New York Times bestselling author Sochil Gonzalez. It is happening at the William Vale in Brooklyn on March 27th. You can find the link to purchase tickets on our Instagram page at Latina to Latina or online at Alicia Menendez XO. I cannot wait to see you. At heart, at heart, all set. We lean to turn in the velodrome. All lines are curved in the velodrome. We pitch and roll, wheels, flesh and bones, total control, and it's, it's ours alone. We lean to turn. That's a track from Dessa's new album, Sound the Bells, which she recorded with the Minnesota Orchestra. Dessa's hit the Billboard charts as a solo artist, a member of the Doomtree Collective, and with her contribution to the Hamilton mixtape. She's also got projects ranging from the scientific and experimental to a collaboration with Izzy's Ice Cream, which is all to say that Dessa is a person and an artist who defies categorization. said there are so many places we could start this conversation so first tell me were you always a person who was firing on like 10 cylinders oh man I mean I think I'm naturally curious Mm -hmm. I would say that I I have been interested in more than one thing at a time for a lot of my life Mm -hmm. but I think we we receive the message when we're when we're little that like your your work life is going to follow one trajectory you're not going to be like a I don't know, a physicist and a and a bespoke furniture designer professionally. <laughs> but like you totally you totally can. Right. Did you have anyone growing up around mm-hmm. you who had that type of life? I did, yeah. I mean, nobody who was like raking in the cash, but um <laughs> my dad had really wide-ranging interests when I was little too. He had a really strong idea about like what vocation and work is. He said your job, well he didn't say your job. Your goal is to do what you love and find someone who's willing to pay you for that. Mm. You know, like that's what work is. That's what work means. You know, he was a musician. He played the lute, which is like the Elizabethan, you know, precursor to the guitar. Yeah, I mean, it's just like kind of esoteric from jump. And then after that, he became a glider pilot, which are those those planes. (laughs) Sure, as you do, those planes without motors. It was long days to to earn enough money to raise a couple kids doing those things. Mm -hmm. 
But he dug it, and I'm sure that part of that stuck. And also, I think I'm just his kid. I really want the hours that I spend working to count, not to only finance the hours that I'm not working. Is your mom like that? I would say to some extent, too, yeah. I mean, she she maybe naturally like had a skill that was more lucrative. She worked for like Honeywell and then the St. Paul Police Department, which is in Minnesota. She's a really good communicator. So she did like television reporting stuff and then public relations stuff. But she'd always had this side interest in environmentalism. And so even when I was a little kid, like before organic was a thing that we knew, she she was part of like real radical groups to try to change like the food system in the U.S. And she would drag me to these meetings where we, where all these like home gardeners and farmers would trade heirloom seeds called Seed Savers Exchange <laughs> so that the biodiversity of the planet didn't, didn't expire as everyone else planted monocrops. Yeah. I think of myself as a creative, but you make me feel like such a square. And never more than when I hear you talk about Doomtree. In your own words, what is it? Okay, I would say Doomtree is a collective of artists that make hip-hop music and other stuff too. It's sort of like whatever the seven of us want to make. Doomtree is the vehicle to try to release and promote that into the world. So it's a friendship clan. (laughs) Does it complicate things, though, when it's a friendship clan and then all of a sudden the friendship clan is making money? It's a good question. I'll tell you when we hit it. No, I mean, (laughs) it's... Yeah, when I was brought in, you know, I was told it's friendship first and it's music second and it's money third. Now, granted, that is like way too pat and trite a motto to have served as a airtight foolproof guide. But it does it does mean something. When I first saw Doomtree, you know, before I was a member of the group, it was very much like a kind of a punk ethos. You know, they, they looked sort of punk rocky and... um and there was a lot of, like, bartering goods and services to get the label made. You know, it's so, like when somebody had new music, it was like, do you know somebody at Kinko's who could be compelled to photocopy our album art if we brought them sandwiches, you know? So there was that just, like, get DIY, get it done vibe. It's just so interesting to watch those performances, which are bombastic and loud and just like joy to it and then the contrast of you as a solo artist which is as all of my favorite music is like much moodier and I mean do you feel like you're sort of one person with them and another person when you're a solo artist or Mm. do you see a through line between the two I think it feels very much like my appetite aesthetically was met was Mm -hmm. fed you know like I've always been interested in anger love, beauty, and sadness. And they're titrated really differently in those two projects. But like Doomtree has some super pretty choruses and the producer Cecil Otter, who's a member of the group too, he he makes some really like beautiful cinematic soaring stuff. But you're right, it is like, you know, I'm, I'm moving my body talking to you now, you know, in a, in a sound booth. It is very, it's kind of like half sport, you know, very athletic stuff. And that's, that's true of a lot of like that era of rap music you know, mm-hmm. um, that I think I, I would sometimes leave those shows eager to, like, build a pretty chord, you know, and do some mm. more patient stuff, too. But after a while of doing pretty stuff, I start to get I start to get antsy to make something that's a little bit mean.
Do you consider yourself indie by choice or by necessity? Ooh, they've blurred over the years. Mm, That's such a cool question. Um, Yeah, because you're right. In one way, it's like I'm indie because nobody, no majors were interested would be the default mode, right? Mm -hmm. But I would say that on the few occasions that I've had with major distributors or industry folks, I was apprehensive about concessions that I might be asked Mm -hmm. to make. Because the labels are like, I need a top 100 hit. Is that it? Yeah, and it's just, it's risky. Like, taking big risks is not something that people who loan you money want you to do. And getting up on stage with an entire orchestra and (laughs) bringing out. Even just like, I'm going to do an album in... Farsi. Well, I don't I don't know how to do that. But if I were someone who spoke Farsi, like, well, that's not going to get us a radio hit. That's too risky. I don't want you to do that with my money. And, you know, when you get a record deal, essentially what you've got is borrowed money. Mm-hmm. I would say I'm not I don't really have like a middle finger up to every institution. That's not it. But the kind of risks that I've wanted to take. Yeah, I don't know if they're appetizing to to major players. But it's also not like I've had like 18 deals on the table and, and said no and then stormed off like Joan of Arc, and, you know, <laughs> in a blaze of self-righteousness either. So. so then how do you make the business of making music work? In, I would say a lot of revenue streams. Like, I don't know if that's like too nerdy to get into. No, but, get into it with me. But it's like the way that you actually pay rent. It's almost like there's a lot of tributaries that contribute to the to the monthly income stream. You know, we're at the end of the year right now. Some of the money that I've made, I made playing concerts. You know, so like people at the door drop their 20, 25 bucks. And then um, I also do, I also write. So if I were to sell an article to a magazine, that might be part of the, the monthly earning. There is, of course, like the the music and the merch, which is trickier as you'd imagine because like Spotify, you know, has everything for free. So why would people pay for music? Right, right. So you make the music into an art object. You do some cool design features. You sign it in metallic marker and, and make an event of the object itself. So some of it's, yeah, merch sales. And then I would say, like, I get enough money from from Spotify, you know, every month to, to pay 80% of my phone bill. So there's a trickle there, but not much. So it's all these things kind of combined that, that help get it done. You said to Juleka, our executive producer, we're really a t-shirt company masquerading as a record company. <laughs> I did. So I just came back from tour. And I saw Juleka, you know, just a few days ago. And because the music is free, you do learn how to sell a lot of other stuff at the merch mm-hmm. booth, you know. So over the course of, like, my touring history, I've sold t-shirts, tank tops, windbreakers, all those normal soft goods, but also, like, hats, engraved flasks, a bronzed version of a neuroanatomical feature in my own brain, which I had 3D printed. So you you do get creative. Like, mer- the merch game is key, is clutch. How do you describe your music? Oh, man, whenever possible, I try to avoid doing it, and I just hand somebody... If I can just hand somebody headphones and press play, they're no, they'll know if they're going to like it. There's not, You know what I mean? There's not a lot of pitching music you can do. You like it or you don't. But I will say that it's word-driven. I think I'm a writer... And a lyricist probably first. It is usually some combination of of anger and beauty. And I I think for my whole life will be driven by the themes of like connection, communion, and loss. Your mom has said that your music is always so sad. <laughs> she yeah, I had finished one record and I sent her like the early mixes. And she said it's beautiful, but 
yeah, why is it always so sad? You always make music to bleed out to. And I thought, why do you know that? Yeah, how'd you learn that expression, yeah, like, mom? What moms are you hanging out with? <laughs> yeah. Uh, but that's my favorite genre of music. Mine too. Why do you like it? I think because during those formative years, like those, the 12, 13, 14, where I think with a few exceptions, you feel sort of alone in the world and feel that the way you see the world is the way only you see it. There were artists at the time who made me feel less that way mm. and made me feel like they were in adulthood and sort of had made it into adulthood, having lived all of these emotions and all of these feelings mm. and had come out whole. Who, who did you listen to? Tori Amos. Yeah. Anna DeFranco. Yeah. But again, my parents were like, what is up with this sad music? Yeah, totally. <laughs> like, Are you okay? Are you okay? And like, yeah, in some ways. I mean, it can be sad, but it can be really empowering. So like I think of a song like Velodrome and I think you can hear sad, but I think you can hear inspiration in that. Like mm-hmm. that to me is like I think when I was 13 that was the type of song that I'd be like one day I'm going to like live in New York City and like walk busily down the streets and like have this life that is complete and whole and like things will whip around. It just like it it is so to me open to interpretation. And you just moved to New York yeah. from Miami. Do you mm-hmm. feel like that's you now? Like yes. I am a person fast walking through New York with a cool place to be. Yes. That's so cool. Yes. And and listening to the music of a person I'm going to sit down to and get to ask questions. Yes, it's amazing. My my 12-year-old self would be both underwhelmed and totally pumped. Totally. Okay, so why why would she why would she be underwhelmed? Um in some ways, my life is so much more domestic than I think my 12-year-old self. I mean, I, I'm married and I have two children. Uh-huh. Right? Like, my yeah. 12-year-old self would have been like, oh, oh. Like, you're a mom? Like, okay. Oh, okay. like, that's not cool. Did your 12-year-old self not think she was going to become a mom? Probably deep down, but, like, not. That wasn't the ambition. Okay. I mean, what, do, is, would your 12-year-old self be impressed with this? Both. I think she'd be both. I mean, it depends what moment she cut in on, you know? Right, like if totally. I, right. I mean, the stage moments, I think she'd be like, Awesome. Did it. I think for some of the other moments, like that kind of brand of, of sustained indignation and disappointment in human <laughs> culture, you know, that you have when you're 14. I think that's right. I think she was right. And I think I got tired. Like, I think that when you are first freshly introduced to the adult world, the fact that you recoil is rational. Mm-hmm. And then I think we just get used to it. When my babies were going through their exploration stage, I had so much to worry about. Falling over, bumping heads, what did she just put in her mouth? The list was endless. But when they were in pamper swaddlers, I knew I never had to worry about a leaky diaper. Swaddlers are great for both baby and mommy. They keep your baby's skin healthy and dry with Pampers Breathe-Free Liner, which wicks away wetness, allowing your baby's skin to breathe. Swaddlers have always given me peace of mind knowing that diaper rash and leaky diapers were not in our future. There's also the blow-up barrier at the back waist to help prevent up to 100% of leaks, even blow-ups. Pamper Swaddlers are dermatologists approved by the Skin Health Alliance, hypoallergenic and free of parabens and latex. Your baby deserves that. And they're available in a wide range of sizes from newborn to size 8, and now feature designs with the newest animal characters, Shiloh the Elephant and Freddy the Duck. Having a diaper you can depend on is important, and it's why I have always loved Pampers, the number one pediatrician-recommended brand. Download the Pampers Club app today to start earning rewards with every diapers and wipes purchase. Not to mention, get great parenting content with Pampers Club. Hey, Red, what are you up to? Just making sure all the M&M's gifts are wrapped and the balls filled. 
Remember that one holiday party when we had no M&Ms? Oh boy, I still have nightmares. The cookies? Yeah, you used all the M&Ms candies that were meant to decorate the party treats to decorate snowmen. You did it again, didn't you? <laughs> they do look cute, though. Bringing cheer, M&Ms for all fun kind. Hi, Latina to Latina listeners. It's Brenda from Tamarindo Podcast. And if you love Latina to Latina, then we know that you're going to love Tamarindo Podcast. And if you're in the L.A. area and can't make it to the Latina to Latina live event, we'd like to invite you to our event on March 28th at 6.30 p.m. We're hosting Amigas Blossoming, a night of celebrating and cultivating blossoming friendships. This will be in Highland Park, and all the details to RSVP for free are at tamarindopodcast.com forward slash events. How does your mom being Puerto Rican show up in your life? Oh, I think it's really changed over the years. When I was a kid, like, I, I don't know, the things that I perceived about my mom that I associated with her Puerto Ricanness were was the way she danced. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was important to her. Like, movement was important to her. And it was important, it was really important to her that, that her children have rhythm. And so she, my dad once, like, came home and she found, he found her, like, forcibly clapping my hands, but, like, in a really, in a, in a really upset and upsetting way because she was so afraid that if I grew up there, I wouldn't have any rhythm. And so I have to admit, I haven't seen you dance. Did you get the rhythm? I'm okay. okay. I made it. Yeah, I made it out. <laughs> I made it through. The way that she sometimes would cook. She's a very good cook. And then the way she looked, like... I am white looking or white passing for sure. And my my mom is a something, you know, like if I were a marketer, I'd call her a soft ethnic or something. You know, she she has kind of ringlets that if when she cuts her hair short, make an afro. And I think it was something that I gravitated to. I liked it. I wanted to be more like that. I felt a little bummed that that my mom looked Puerto Rican and had a name that can be said in an anglicized way or in a... Latin way, in a Spanish way. So it's Silvia or Silvia, and the same is true of, of all her cousins. It's Irene or Irene, you know? So they, they all have these, like, kind of nicely convertible names. and So no one calls you Desa. Nobody got except for me, like, in, when I'm drunk and speaking Spanish, which is just humiliating because it sounds so stupid. But, but it was something that I wanted more of. And then I think, you know, when I started rapping, and people would ask, like, well, what's it like to be a white rapper, I felt like there was a card that I could play, sort of like, oh, you haven't done your you haven't done your homework. But now when people ask that, I'm like, first of all, you haven't done your homework. But second, like that's a question I should answer and, and take seriously because because I maneuver like a through the white world. Mm-hmm. What's the answer? Oh, that's a long one. I mean and one that I'm still answering, but I do think that like some of the money that I make and some of the gigs that I get are because I went to college with somebody. It's like it's like I'm the beneficiary of all of these network connections that I might not be the beneficiary of, right? If I'd grown up in a totally different neighborhood with a different set of parents and ended up in a different public school and then ended up in a different public college, right? My whole network would be different. So fast when you fast forward 15 years, maybe you don't have those connections that that can get you paid and can get you ahead professionally. I think like a lot of people, you sort of struggle in your own head to try to understand your own life as the product of both luck, skill, and error. 
And it's really hard to tell <laughs> how exactly all three of those variables ought to be weighted. Mm-hmm. But I think in the past few years, a lot of us have been asked to consider uh, the luck of our birth, and that's appropriate. I've recently rewatched your TED Talk, Can We Choose to Fall Out of Love? Is it asking too much to ask you to take me back to the relationship that inspired that breakup? Sure. So I joined Doomtree, I think, like in my early 20s, like 21 or 22. Nobody was really counting. But I fell in love with one of the members, and he fell in love with me. And this, I think, was before I was even in the, cl- in the crew. Like We were dating... And that relationship was big and intense and felt felt a little bit charmed in some ways that, like, we got to be on stage together. Mm-hmm. It's a big deal. A lot of adrenaline, a lot of, like, love and drama, you know, to be able to, like, pile in a van with all your good friends, all, all of them dudes. It was, like, a very intense life. I wanted to love this dude. I was as as our relationship went sour. I was also like pretty mad at that dude. Um, well, there was also a show to go on that night, and it was not appropriate to bring my sour feelings into the minivan where the collective art and livelihood of all these people lived. There's something that struck me though that you said, which is that you were sort of embarrassed about the fact that it was taking you so so hard for you to bounce back from this. So as those feelings continue for five years and then seven years, and then for a while he and I both like dated other people and I think had a pretty good thing going with our partners, but those relationships dissolved and we ended up trying again. So over the course of the thing, you know, it's something like 13 years or 17 years it's just so so long so long that it was like how am I still so busted yeah that was that was embarrassing it didn't feel like an empowered feminist way to be to like have your quality of life seriously informed by your feelings for a dude and so you turned to science so after trying all the normal ways first you know what I mean it was like you talk to your friends you drink too much and then you don't drink at all and then you you know I ended up moving to New York you know at least part-time kundalini yoga yeah (laughs) you get weird you do weird stuff (laughs) yeah that that was then when I had I've been watching like a TED talk on my laptop and there was this woman Dr. Helen Fisher who was presenting work that she'd done where she had tried to find the locations in the human brain um the exact neuroanatomy that was associated with romantic love. I found that surprising because I didn't know there was going to be particular neuroanatomy that was associated with romantic love. That had just never occurred to me that that might, I don't know, there might be a locus for that feeling, you know? And then I thought, okay, well, if she's found out where it is, then if I found my love in my brain, maybe I could remove it (laughs) and stop hurting so much. So that was what I tried to do. Did it work? Medium. Sort of. I would say it sort of worked. Yeah. You got merch out of it in the process. Oh, man. And the merch is so tight. <laughs> it did make me feel better. It didn't solve every problem. But yeah, it did make it did make me feel better. I felt more solid. I still feel pain. But I felt I was feeling really compulsed. Mm-hmm. I mean, I was feeling spun out about the dude. Just like the force of my love was was outlandish to me. And it, it was making me so sad. So sad that even though I'd built this pretty cool life, 
I was having a really hard time enjoying it because I wanted that to work so bad, and I felt I felt so immediately the pain of it not working. You introduced me to a term that I had I didn't know the term torch song. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it's an old term from like the '60s. It's like maybe it's something that's sung by both female and male singers, but it's usually like it's an old flame that you're stuck on. You're holding a torch for somebody. Yeah, and, yeah. and meanwhile, I'm like on on the Google being like, is this short for torture? That sort of became yeah. your thing. Yeah, exactly. So I would contribute to songs about all sorts of stuff. But in my solo work, like a good chunk of them were like these kind of spirited, sad, sometimes sometimes angry, like, ugh, just feeling totally broken by this feeling and 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 housing all of this totally useless love. Like this is this love is good for nothing. It doesn't help me, it doesn't help him. No one is helped by this. You in another interview you said something that I relate to so deeply, which is I'm a kind of perfectionist sort who's always sort of bummed about how the last thing went. Yeah. That doesn't sound that articulate, I have to say. No, it doesn't, especially in contrast to the person I'm sitting here with. But let's go to the essence of it, which is being a perfectionist. Can you do what you do at the level you do it without being that person? Oh, man, I've been thinking about this a lot today. I don't know. The story that I have told myself is this approach and these ideas and this degree of hypercriticalness is going to make you a bit unhappy, but it is also going to make your work a lot better. If 98% was good enough, then you'd stop there. Mm -hmm. But I find that to my disappointment, the kind of that hypercritical approach is very difficult to confine to yourself. I'm critical of of everything, Mm -hmm. you know, and that's not. I, I was thinking today is it possible to be uncompromisingly critical and also warm, tender, generous, and forgiving. I think there is a natural tension between those things. Yeah, and especially, I mean, my perception of you not knowing you at all is that you really have access to both. Trying, but I but I do think, I don't know, I just, I think that that kind of critical criticality, it can make you short with other people as well, you know? Yes, no, I know for sure. I used to sort of use as a shield saying, well, I know I'm really hard on you, but I'm really hard on myself. As though that's somehow forgiving. Like that makes it yes. better for them. Yes. Oh, good. You yell at you after you yell at me? Great. That's a birthday party. Yeah. But it, when you yeah. when you hold yourself to a high standard, yeah. you do hold other people to a high standard. And I think there's just sort of a question of how you both enable and empower other people to achieve excellence um, without that crossing over into the type of critique that is hurtful and paralyzing. Also, what if people don't want excellence like I want excellence? How are you going to treat those people? I think that has been an evolution for me professionally, which is that I can only be surrounded by people who want the same level of excellence. I feel you, but what about the relationships that are not professional? Oh, we, oh that, that's a whole different... You know what I mean? Like, I just even mean like in a partner. Yeah. Like the fact that I'm like, I just want you to know that, I, that I'm also hard on me is like not... <laughs> That is not a uh, a consolation, really. Yeah. So the fact that I like make weird rules and for myself, I don't know. I, I'm concerned about how that might play out in the rest of my interpersonal relationships. I have found a way to make it work. How? I, mean, I I think part of it is is finding someone who 
approximates has sort of either the same level of self-awareness or the yeah, same okay. level of sort of holding themselves to an impossible standard. So yeah. at least there is some empathy in there. Yeah. Um, but then also really sort of radically coming to terms with the fact that like a person is who they are and they're not a project. Yeah. Like that was a thing that I used to do being like, if I could just tidy this thing up on the margins, then like this could be perfect. It's like, no. Like this is what it is. is. And so you either have to fully embrace that, Uh the messy parts of it too. But do you do that with yourself? I've become a lot more forgiving with myself, Mm. I will say. I think also parenthood has forced me to do that in the way that it's like there's just less time and space to be in my own head. Yeah. The gifts of children, which is they really draw you out. And that every day sort of starts fresh. Like there's just there's not the time and energy to have that mental hangover from the day before. Yeah. So I'm just going to have gonna a kid. You're going to find the right person. <laughs> yeah, probably. Probably. Because it's okay to be uncompromising, right? I think so. I think so. I mean, I do think that as I grow older, like, it is also possible that some behaviors that serve me really well in my 20s and 30s, mm-hmm. I'm going to decide when I leave my 30s, this one isn't serving me well anymore. Last question. I would posit that there are a lot of people who want to live the type of life that you are living in the sense of having lots of interest, having lots of projects, not confining themselves to one thing, but they don't know where to begin to do that. Mm. How about just someone who wants to buck convention? Yeah, yeah, I'm with this. I think even little bucks go a good long way towards long-term bucks, like Mm -hmm. cutting your own hair. Getting the weird bicycle. Like, (laughs) I really mean it. Eating weird food. I think, like, buying one weird thing at the grocery store. Just, like, things that you can do to nudge yourself off of your own monorail tracks. I think that's good. I mean, you can always bail and go back to the way that it was, you know? You can always bail. That said, I think failing sucks. I think I am very sensitive to public embarrassment. I hate it. I don't think it's always curative. I think sometimes it just sucks. I just think that it's better than the alternative, which is wondering what it would have been like if you had tried to have a fuller life. Tessa, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. For real. (laughs) Thanks. Thanks, as always, for joining us. Latina to Latina is executive produced and owned by Juleka Lentiqua-Williams and me. Maria Muriel is our producer. Carolina Rodriguez is our sound engineer. Emma Forbes is our assistant producer. We love hearing from you, so email us at hola at latinatolatina.com. And remember to subscribe or follow us on Radio Public, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Pandora, Spotify, or wherever you're listening. And please leave a review. It's one of the quickest ways to help us grow as a community. A little update on our March 27th live recording of Latina to Latina. You did it. You sold out our early bird tickets. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. There is still time to grab your regular tickets while they last. Again, the details. We are partnering with our friends at Poderistas to bring you a conversation with New York Times bestselling author Sochil Gonzalez. It is happening at the William Vale in Brooklyn on March 27th. You can find the link to purchase tickets on our Instagram page at Latina to Latina or online at Alicia Menendez XO. I cannot wait to see you.